from Hammer Japan, I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Dallin Oaks will join us to discuss structural ambiguities in English. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science show. Well, the remarkable richness of the English language makes it particularly amenable to all manners of wordplay, jokes, and humor. But what is it about the structure of the English language that allows for this? Well, join us to discuss this issue is Professor Dallin D. Oakes. Professor Oakes is a professor of linguistics at Brigham Young University whose work specializes in English linguistics. Author of numerous works on the subjects, including Linguistics at Work and An Introductory English Grammar, his upcoming release, Structural Ambiguity in English and Applied Grammatical Inventory, explores these fascinating aspects of the English language for a general audience. Professor Oakes, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. Well, certainly our pleasure to have you on the program. And uh, this is really, I think, a very fascinating book. What is actually structural ambiguity? Well, structural ambiguity encompasses a very broad number of structures in the language. In a nutshell, it's when the structure itself is ambiguous. That may also involve word meaning ambiguities, but it's not limited to that. So it can be anything from a part of speech ambiguity where you don't know if it's a noun or a verb. You know, many people have heard the old joke, what has four wheels and flies? where the answer is a garbage truck, and then you go back and reprocess and realize that flies, in that case, was a noun rather than a verb. It can involve grammatical function. If I say I brought the cat food, does that mean is cat food together a direct object, or is cat an indirect object and food is the direct object? Or it can involve modifier ambiguities, like the old joke where the lady says, may I try on that dress in the window? And sales clerk says, well, don't you think a dressing room would be a more appropriate place where we can't tell if in the window is modifying try on or the noun dress. And those are just different types of structural ambiguity. And is English particularly prevalent with these sorts of structural ambiguities? Yeah, I think English really lends itself well to that. It has a lot of uh, homonyms and homophones, words that have the same sound, words that have the same spelling. It uh, has lost a lot of its inflections. These would be endings on words to signal clearly the relationships in the sentence, as well as other grammatical information. So English is really quite vulnerable to these kinds of ambiguities. And from the standpoint of wordplay, they often make some of the cleverest and funniest wordplays, these structural ambiguities. Hmm. And how is this distinguished from the lexical ambiguities that you talked about a little earlier? Well, the lexical ambiguity may be where you just have the word meaning is ambiguous, but it doesn't change the structural interpretation. So to give you kind of a corny 
kid's joke, and we can contrast this with the what has four wheels and flies. If you say, why was Cinderella thrown off the baseball team because she kept running away from the ball? (laughs) That's a pretty lame joke, but it's a lexical ambiguity because ball is a noun by either interpretation. It's an object of a preposition by either interpretation. If I diagram the sentence, it's going to be the same kind of diagram. That would be more of a lexical ambiguity. And the sort of lexical ambiguities there is maybe a simpler form of the structural ambiguities. Well, they're a different type of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Sometimes some structural ambiguities also involve a lexical ambiguity. Mm-hmm. You know, in the case of what has four wheels and flies, flies is alternating between one meaning of flies versus another meaning of flies, but I consider it structural because it changes whether it's a noun or a verb in our interpretation. So sometimes the lexical ambiguity is also a structural ambiguity. I see. Uh, The book that you have coming out is actually an inventory of a lot of these types of structural ambiguities in English. I'm wondering if you can maybe give some examples. Well, I go through the grammatical system of English, so I have a chapter on things to consider with regard to nouns, and another chapter on conjunctions, another chapter on prepositions, and I just look at these different idiosyncrasies of these different parts of speech and subclasses within them and how they can be manipulated. The focus of the book is to show how to deliberately create them, not for any kind of devious purpose, not to deceive people, but from the standpoint of creating slogans or jingles or word plays, how these parts of speech can be manipulated that way and into ambiguities that you hope people will see both meanings uh, as, again, you know, not to deceive, but just to have a little bit of fun with it. Do you find that there are certain types of structures that are particularly prevalent in these type of word plays? Oh, yeah. There's some that are really easy and very common. For example, a past participle after a be verb, this would be a word like closed, which is a past participle. If I put it after a be verb, I often get an ambiguity about whether I have a passive structure or something that's uh, functioning like an adjective. You know, if I said the door was closed, am I describing the door or am I saying that somebody closed the door? That kind of structure is very common. It comes up a lot in a lot of ambiguities, and comedians and advertisers have used it quite a bit. Hmm. And again, it's just because of the fluidity of where uh, subjects and verbs and objects can be in the English language? Yeah, we have overlapping positions, Hmm. and so some structures resemble each other because we combine similar things together, but the identity is different of some of the elements that are combined, and because of that, we end up with a very different meaning, and the structure is even interpreted differently. Back to that passive versus adjective kind of example, a comedian had done something where somebody said, so-and-so is outspoken, and the comedian says, not by anyone I know. And so was that a description or saying that we outspeak that person? They're two different structures, but when you get thinking of one and you get surprised with the other kind of interpretation, people laugh at it. Is that sort of a general feature of humor in language, is that it requires surprise in a sense that you have to go back and reprocess? Yeah. In fact, Victor Raskin at Purdue has proposed that humor is found in the recognition of two different scripts, uh, two different kind, uh, you know, kinds of meanings that people recognize. And when they get that recognition, they see the humor in it. 
And that's often what happens with these structures, that people go along with one kind of interpretation and then there's a, a sort of trigger. I think that's a term from Victor Raskin, and you see the other meaning, and that's where they find humor. And, of course, dissecting it on a radio program like this, it doesn't sound funny anymore, but <laughs> some really good uh, word plays and, and jingles uh, have been built around these kinds of structures. Hmm. Uh, indeed, you, you sort of mentioned earlier that really this has a lot of applications for advertising and marketing. Yeah, I believe it does. I Sometimes I think advertisers brainstorm and they come up with very clever things. But imagine the additional power that you could put into their hands if they have some identifiable formulas that can work together to create some of the word plays that end up being often very enduring. You know, the glad garbage bag slogan, don't get mad, get glad. That get glad part is a structural ambiguity, and they've used that for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. Mm. There's perhaps a different way of learning the English language then that would help people focus on these type of structural ambiguities? That's an interesting question because I think that, you know, when people think about studying grammar, they think about studying it so that they can improve, well, remove from their language certain kinds of stigmatized forms. You know, you get teachers that'll try to ingrain into you, say each of the boys is, don't say each of the boys are, and that's how people picture a grammar class. But actually, you could also teach grammar from the standpoint of learning how these particular elements in the language work so that they can be more effectively manipulated in the kinds of creativity that might be useful in a marketing or advertising curriculum. That, that's my opinion anyway. Mm. And do you find that uh, this really isn't done in current uh, marketing or advertising? I don't believe so. You know, they have other things they teach, and they if you were to talk to them about the importance of grammar, I don't think they think of it in terms of creativity, which is really what I'm talking about here, is using the uh, knowledge of the structures of the language to enhance someone's creativity. I don't think that's usually the focus of grammatical study to the extent that it might exist in an advertising or marketing curriculum. Mm. I wonder if maybe you can give uh, some other examples of interesting structural ambiguities that you've come across. Well, here's one that people sometimes say to me, well, what about context? Doesn't context make things clear? Well, you know, most of the time it probably does, but we have to remember that in humor and advertising, people control the context. And because of that, they can create possible interpretations or limit possible interpretations to get the effect they want. One of my favorite jokes is an old cannibal joke where a person comes home and says, is there any food left? And the other one says, no, everybody's eaten. Now, if I didn't tell you that that was a cannibal joke, you would only process that as everyone has eaten, which is a present perfect structure. But because you know that it's a cannibal, you also understand that there's the possibility for everybody is eaten, which is a passive structure. And that's a good example of a structural ambiguity. One interpretation is present perfect, the other is passive. And in this case, you have the context, but it's actually some additional context. I told you it's a cannibal, and that helped you actually to see an ambiguity that wouldn't otherwise have occurred. There are lots of devices I explore in my book. I look at, for example, the use of her People haven't really considered much about the fact that her can be either a possessive or it can be an object form. That's different from the male comparable forms because you have his as the possessive and him as the object form. 
but it's crucial to an old joke that uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen used in an old routine many years ago where George comes in and he sees some flowers in the room and he says to Gracie, hey, Gracie, where did you get those? And she said, oh, you're the reason I have them, George. You told me when I went to visit Clara Bagley in the hospital to take her flowers. And so when she wasn't looking, I did. And there, notice that take her flowers is ambiguous. But if I had used the male equivalent, if it had been take him flowers or take his flowers, I have two different forms, him and his, which Mm. distinguish the meanings, whereas her does not. Mm. That's probably a longer answer than you wanted, but that is an example of the kind of thing I explore in there, how her can be used, how different structures can be used. Mm. Well, so it seems like then uh, comedic writers have probably mined a lot of this just by trial and error. Yeah, I think people have stumbled across these things and developed jokes out of them. I think there's a tradition where comedians also reached back into the vaudeville acts and pulled forward some of the jokes and gags that they saw worked, probably altered them a little to some new context. But I don't think that there's any kind of systematic use of the grammar I think the comedians have systematic use of certain kinds of strategies, like what's called a reverse, but that's not grammatically based so much. A reverse is where you get people thinking one direction and you kind of pull the carpet out from under them. I think one of the most famous reverses that has been used is something that uh, Ronald Reagan actually used when he and Walter Mondale had a debate. And I think, if, if I recall correctly, and Reagan, who was considerably older than Mondale, said, I don't think we should make age an issue in this campaign. And because of that, I'm not going to comment on my opponent's youth and inexperience, which, you know, people found humorous because you hear that buildup and you're expecting Reagan to be talking about his own age, but he was actually making a joke about Mondale's. You will see comedians talk about those kinds of things, but I don't think you see them talk so much about grammatical manipulations. In a sense that they they probably play on the same types of mechanisms in the brain, expectation and then change of expectation. Yeah, yeah, that's common to both the kind of reverse I described as well as the grammatical things. And and notice it it probably integrates Victor Raskin's uh, notion of the scripts, Mm. the two competing scripts. But as far as an in-depth investigation of the grammatical system, I think what I have here is is very new. How does this relate to the types of puns that a lot of people sort of come up with? Well, some of the puns that you see that really make people groan much of the time, grammar only works by one of the interpretations. They get you to see the other meaning because you know that they're trying to do a joke and you know that there's got to be another meaning and so you, you can kind of see it, but they're not smooth because grammatically, one of the interpretations just doesn't work. An example I like to give of this is a joke I saw in a a joke book once that said, when is a dog overweight when it's a husky? Well, we get the joke. We can get the two intended meanings, but really you look at it and it's structurally ill-formed because uh, if you say it is a husky, that only works for the noun meaning of husky because the adjective meaning wouldn't have an article there like, uh, you just say it is husky. It's because you know the person's trying to make a joke that you're able to piece it together and see. But those kind of jokes usually, I think, make people groan. Now, one of the structures I identify in my book is a form called a little, and that actually bridges the incompatibility between the noun and the adjective. So if you had formed the punchline this way, if you said when it's a little husky, then the pun works. 
And, you know, it's not a, a wonderful pun, but it's a pretty good one. It's much better than just saying when it is a husky. To say when it's a little husky bridges that incompatibility. Mm. So a correct structuring of the ambiguity is essential to that. I think it makes the humor better. And one of the things I look at in my book is these kinds of strategies for bridging these incompatibilities mm. in structures. Mm. Who would you recommend that really go about learning uh, these type of ambiguities? I think people who are wordsmiths, whether they're working in the greeting card industry, advertising, marketing, coming up with t-shirt logos, you know, I think people like that would be interested. I think some people may not do it as a vocation, but as an avocation, hobbyists who enjoy language. I think a number of people would find the book interesting, but it's not the kind of book you curl up next to the fire on a cold winter day and... <laughs> read from start to finish. You know, it's it's more of a reference book. Well, it sounds like it could be developed into a nice board game or something. <laughs> it could. It could possibly. How did you actually become interested in this particular um, issue? You know, I started studying it in graduate school, but I came to appreciate the depth and the possibilities actually after I'd finished my Ph.D. program and came across more data, came across ideas about how to put this more into a sort of methodology, a decision tree format, so that people could work their way through and create these things. It's something that I've worked on for quite a while, but I've come to appreciate its possibilities uh, more with the passage of time. Hmm. Do you think having a, a formalism like this act maybe take some of the magic out of wordsmithing? You know, I, I've wondered about that sometimes, but I don't think so. The reason is sometimes you can know how something's done, but you're still kind of amazed at the creativity and ability of others who can do it. Hmm. You might know how the ventriloquist illusion is done, but, you know, some people can pull it off and others just don't do it as well. I know how a piano works, but, you know, I can't play the piano. So in that sense, I still find things humorous, even though I can kind of pull them apart and see why they work. They still make me laugh. I do think this sort of approach, though, can enhance someone's abilities. So the analogy is not quite right to compare it with piano or ventriloquism, but there's still an appreciation I think people can have for it, even as they understand how it works. Do you think maybe it adds to the richness and the appreciation of the language? I think so. You know, I can only right now reflect on my own experience and the experience of students uh, that I teach, but, you know, I don't think they go out as curmudgeons who don't laugh at anything anymore. <laughs> I think, uh, if anything, they appreciate the language more. Well, that's really good in this day and age. <laughs> we all need to laugh a little, I think. <laughs> Time, uh, if you have some final words regarding uh, structural ambiguities in English. Well, I think it's just remarkable, and I think it's surprising to people sometimes to see how these language things can be reduced down to formulas. I think people are sometimes surprised to see just how formulaic some of these kinds of grammatical word plays are. They're not all so haphazard as we might think. Many of them, perhaps most of them, follow very identifiable formulas that can be replicated and predicted and used. Hmm. And appreciated. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, the upcoming release titled uh, Structural Ambiguity in English and Applied Grammatical Inventory, uh, when will that be out? It's going to be out in either February or March oh. of this year. So we're just a month or maybe two months away from it. It's not a trade publication, so and it is a two-volume hardback, so it 
it costs a little bit of money, but I think for somebody involved in wordsmithing, I think it's just the ticket. All right, let's really take a look at that. Professor Oaks, I want to thank you very much uh, for your time and join us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you for having me. And you were just listening to Professor Dallin Oaks discussing structural ambiguities in English. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. What did you say? I know I saw you singing But my ears won't stop ringing Long enough to hear those sweet words What did you say? End of the day The hour hand has spun But before the I just have to hear those sweet words Spoken like a melody All your love is a lost moon Rising up through the air to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic ambiguous or absolute. So for the following five individuals, the uh, Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would rate them as being ambiguous or absolute, and uh, maybe a little reason why. Professor Oaks, are you ready to play the game? Well, I, I don't quite understand the game, but uh, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll try. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, person number one, then, ambiguous or absolute, it's the uh, quarterback, Brett Favre. Oh, boy. Well, I'll tell you my cop-out on this is I think most people are ambiguous anyway, so <laughs> I'll just say he's ambiguous. All right. <laughs> well, let's see about number two, then. It's the uh, Microsoft uh, CEO, Bill Gates. Just because he works with computers, I'll say absolute. Uh, number three is uh, the golfer Tiger Woods. I'll say ambiguous. Um, all right. Number four is the talk show host Jerry Springer. Oh, boy. I- I'm going to say ambiguous. Okay. <laughs> and uh, finally, number five, ambiguous or absolute, uh, Barack Obama. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you know, I'm going to say ambiguous on that, too. (laughs) All right. Uh, All right. Well, Professor Oaks, I want to thank you uh, for sticking around playing the game. And, of course, talking about uh, the new book, which is called uh, Structural Ambiguities in English and Applied Grammatical Inventory. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It was our pleasure. Thank you. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.